It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello, well here we are again, another another week. Another week, another recipe. Have you been back into the uh, into the cookbook? I have, I have. I I think I, I mean, I think because the squash, um, butternut squash soup didn't get the raspberry of to mix my sort of metaphors, uh, <laughs> um, quite in the same way as the black bean soup had. I then got encouraged and made a lentil soup. How did it go? It was fine actually. Soups are quite easy, aren't they? Mm. Uh, in fact, I mean, this isn't my reason to be cheerful, but I mean, my, the big news of my big news of the week is that we've bought a new frying pan. Congratulations. I mean, it does beg the question, what happened to the old one? Well, what happened to the old frying pan, which was also a new frying pan about 18 months ago? <laughs> yes, I seem to remember this This not being the first time you've bought a new frying pan. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I mean, this either suggests that A, I don't look after my frying pans, B, that I struggle for material, or C, both. <laughs> Uh, uh, and I think probably the answer is both. Um, no, it's because we didn't, you know, it's one of those non-stick frying pans and, uh, we didn't wash it in a very careful way. Oh, you've got to watch that when the coating starts peeling off. That can yeah. be very dangerous. We're going to be much, much more careful with this new one. Um, but it is quite exciting because I make, I like making pancakes for my children, but if your non-stick pine cl- frying pan is no longer non-stick, you know, it makes the pancake situation tricky, I would say. And you do the full flip? I've actually sort of... I'm an aspirant flipper. You flip with flair? Is this what you're about to tell me? I'm not sure flip with flair. You're a flamboyant flipper. I'm not... A fl- I think flamboyant is also too strong, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sort of aspiring flipper. You're a man of surprises. Would you not have had me down as a flipper? Not, not necessarily. Yeah. There's a lot to go wrong with a flip, I find. And, and particularly me in the flip. But anyway, I, I'm continuing to try to make progress on the culinary front. What about you? Well, you know, you were saying um, the fact that you're talking about your frying pan suggests that maybe you're struggling for things to talk about on yeah. the podcast. Yeah. I was going to ask you, because this is certainly true in our house, do you find that one of the side effects on your marriage of, of lockdown is that the quality of conversation between you and Justine has has plummeted. And I think there are two reasons for this. Number one is there's very little in the way of external stimuli. You're not going out into the world and collecting things to bring back and talk about. And then secondly, because you're just together so much more, every thought that comes into your head just gets blurted out. How interesting. I hadn't quite thought about that. Yeah, I don't know is the answer. I, I I believe I hit a new conversational low the other night and uh, Sarah rolled her eyes at this hypothetical question. So I thought I, I would try it on you and see if it fares any better with you. Just imagine, bear with me on this, imagine... I'm closing my eyes, yeah. Imagine you could time travel back to the 80s. Like back to the future, but sort of further back. Yeah, further yeah. back, yeah. yeah. I mean, not as far back from now 
to then as it was yeah. from then to the 50s but let's not get yeah. into this if you could go back well, to pretty similar actually more Sorry than more than i think we are further away from back than, to the future than right. marty was from his parents in that film god yeah okay yeah anyway getting sidetracked if you could time yeah. travel back to the 80s and eat a good loaf of bread would a good loaf of bread back then taste as good as the good bread that we're used to now no don't you think that's astonishing? That was my... I strongly feel that's the case. So bread is something that's been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. In fact, definitely thousands of years. Why has it got so much better in the last 30 years? That's a really interesting question. But also, maybe you're sort of raising a whole a whole set of questions here, which is, is that the only basic food that has got better? And have any got worse? Mm, I mean, people always talk about how strawberries don't taste like they did in their youth. Well, what's the answer on the bread? Isn't it, I mean, isn't it a sort of market-oriented thing that there are people who are willing to pay through the nose for a sort of artisan, ciabatta, poppy seed, you know, malarkey, you know, wangdoodle? I mean, you know. <laughs> I know I am. I mean, uh, isn't, that, isn't that part of it? Yeah, maybe. But I, I still think... A, a good crusty loaf of white bread that you got from a bakery now would taste better than one from 1982. I remember when I was like, I don't know, was it five years old? I can't even remember. Maybe it was slightly older. We used to get very nice white crusty rolls from Mrs. Davis's um, dairy round the corner. That makes it sound like you grew up in a bucolic setting. This was in London, I'm guessing. It was. I never knew what Mrs. Davis's first name was. I sometimes think I as a child speculated it was Mavis because it rhymes with Davis, but uh, but 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 I just knew her as Mrs. Davis. Um, she was really nice. Um, anyway, how do we get on to this? The hypothetical eighties uh, bread question. Oh, that, yeah, that, yeah, is, yeah, that is yeah. the high quality of uh, conversation in our house. I'd say that's pretty good quality, well, actually. Thank you, thank you. I mean, I, I thought it was worth saying, but Sarah really rolled her eyes at me. Um, I also texted you a few days ago because I've become a little obsessed with The Masked Singer, not just to find out whether you're the badger or not, oh, yes. but also because I've got a theory that, and as of many people, that the Viking is Morton Harkett. So I sent you a clip of this. Yeah. Um, what was your feeling? Because you've never seen it. It's a part of pop culture that I can't imagine that you could get into. Well, look, I don't know the answer on... I don't know the answer, but I, when will they reveal the answer? It, every week someone gets elim- eliminated. My, my son watched it with me this week and he has a theory as to who's inside the uh, the Harley Quinn. And who is that? He thinks it's Hanan. Who's Hanan? Uh, she was one of his old teachers at Day Nursery. He's absolutely yeah. convinced, and I think he's, he's going to be quite disappointed when he finds out it's a celebrity. What have you said to him? It's an interesting parenting question here. I, I said, hmm, it could be. We'll, ch- we'll just have to wait and see. I think it's very good parenting that you've said, no, Gene, don't be silly. It can't be your teacher, blah. I'm very bad at delivering harsh truths. No, 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 I think it's good. No, I genuinely think it's good that you haven't said that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, anyway, I think you've done well. well Should we you. talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. This week, we're talking about a really interesting question, which is how to make sure the green transition translates into creating jobs, particularly focusing on the offshore wind sector. The UK leads the world in offshore wind power, uh, having had uh, a, a regime to really ensure uh, that we have a growth in offshore wind farms over the last decade or so. But we definitely don't lead the world when it comes to jobs in the sector. Uh, And many of the jobs that have been promised are yet to materialise. And we're going to be asking why that is and what can we do about it going forward. 
We're talking to Hazel Nolan, an organiser with the GMB Union in Scotland. She's been organising workers at the manufacturing company Bifab, which collapsed last year after failing to win work relating to new offshore wind farms near its factory in Fife. And so as a consequence of this, we're going to be shipping blades from many, 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 many thousands of miles away to be erected very near where the where the factory is. And we'll be asking her what the experience shows about the risks of getting the green transition wrong. Then we're going to get inspiration from Denmark. We like getting Scandinavian inspiration, don't we? Absolutely. Which created its first offshore wind farm in the 1990s and has been a pioneer ever since. We'll be asking Thomas Silvest from Danish Shipping why the offshore wind industry in Denmark has been so much more successful at creating jobs than the UK. And Jeff will be conducting that interview in Danish. And, and tune in to find out whether I'm telling the truth. <laughs> And then we're talking to Chaitanya Kumar returning to the pod from the New Economics Foundation about what we need to do to build a thriving renewable energy sector within the UK. And our cheerful person this week is activist Amica George. We've spoken to Amica in the past about her campaign on period poverty, but she's back and she's here to talk about a handbook for activism that she's recently written. It's called Make It Happen. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, look, this is sort of heavily previewed last week, but honestly... Um, Call My Agent has been a bright spot. Ah, oui, uh, oui, oui. Andrea, I've, Gabriel. I've watched... Are they? I haven't watched uh, all of them. I've watched three of them. We did We did the whole lot last weekend. Wow. Um, I mean, I even watched one on my own, actually. Uh, Justine was tired and went to bed, and I just... by uh, She allowed me to watch one on my own. Oh, no, so was, how do you deal she, with that? Do you have to wait for her to catch up now? She caught up the next, the next uh, evening. I think it's actually even better than... It, I mean, it's... I mean, it's certainly not jumping the shark. It's no, it's the last it series, before. and I think, they've, I think they've gone out on a high. I mean, they really have. Um, uh, yeah, it's just got a sort of um, je ne sais quoi, hasn't it? Absolutely. You've got an agent, haven't you? Yes. Your agent, like call my agent. No, I don't. So there are four main agents in it, and I don't believe she conforms to uh, to any of them. It is a very strange relationship people can have with their agents i've noticed over the years and i've had ones of uh, varying degrees of functionality in those relationships but it's it's really weird because these people in theory should be your business partner and instead it, it can end up feeling like a marriage if you've lost an earring do you make your agent go and find it for you <laughs> um I'm, uh, spoiler alert that's a major plot point that you've just revealed major plot point um the mystery of the missing earring uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? My friend Zena sent me a link to uh, a BBC News story a couple of days ago about one of my favourite bands, Flaming Lips. Are you familiar with them? She Don't Use Jelly, do you remember that one? Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots, was that on Ed's iPod back in the early 80s? I mean, overall, I think I sort of preferred their early stuff. The reason she sent me this article is they've done some COVID-friendly concerts in Oklahoma. Wow. The band and the audience were in inflatable bubbles. Uh, instead of clapping, people were punching the top of their bubbles. Now, inside there, inside the balls with them, were uh, little speakers which helped prevent the sound being muffled, a water bottle, a battery-operated fan, a towel, and a sign uh, that you could flip around to say either I got to go pee or hot in here, and then if you got too hot or you need to go to the toilet, security staff would uh, come and help you and refill Jeez. cool air in there or using a leaf blower, um, uh, and then that you could be escorted to the toilet by staff who put on a mask and once you're outside, you 
cocoon. Gee. Don't you think that sounds great? It sounds extraordinary. How many people were there? Three or something? <laughs> I, th- I don't know the numbers, but I'm guessing it was like in the thousands. They're an interesting wow. band because the, the singer of that band pre-covid used to go out over the heads of the audience in one of those zorbing balls so they were well positioned uh to uh to make to make the switch so, to a covid friendly concert yeah i mean that's obviously quite a lot like the way i handle my sort of political meetings yeah <laughs> reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd now, to talk specifically about uh, the UK and, and some of the issues that are faced by the attempts to build an offshore wind industry in the UK, we're joined now by Hazel Nolan, who is regional organiser for the GMB Union in Scotland. Hazel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, look, it's great to have you. Um, as an organiser in the GMB Scotland, you've been involved with the struggles of a company called Bifab and its workers. Can you explain for our listeners the story of, of what's happened to Bifab and and maybe we can then talk about what it highlights about, about the industry in the UK? So Bifab is a company that operate across three different sites in Scotland and traditionally they would have generated most of their work from the offshore sector. So they're a fabrication company, which means that they build the structures um, for for offshore oil and gas. And they were uh, involved in some projects to do with offshore wind farms. So if we're going to have a conversation about what a just transition would look like, a company like Bifab would be a prime example of uh, of a company that you'd be looking to succeed in, in terms of a just transition where workers um, traditionally engaged in the oil and gas industry and fabrication work for, for that industry would transition into offshore wind. And as we know, the UK is um, a world leader in, in terms of um, production of offshore wind farms. What happened with Bifab is that, and it's kind of ironic in a way, in uh, 2017, while the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, was at a renewables conference in Bonn, uh, the company went into liquidation, and or faced liquidation. And at that time, the, uh, the workforce ended up having to occupy the yards and uh, and it's very frustrating because you know this was a multi-billion pound project and so few jobs are being generated in in the United Kingdom. Just explain Hazel the recent um, the most recent history in relation to Bifab um, because it is very illustrative of the struggles in the industry isn't it? After the yard was saved in 2017 uh, due to the they working on a project called Bowles uh, there were two big projects that were coming on board in offshore wind in Scotland. And between them, that was over £5 billion worth of, of a project. And not a single job in manufacturing is now going to come to UK shores as a result of it. Uh, Bifab was down to get um, eight jackets from EDF. Um, and that was that only came about after a sustained campaign by the trade unions in Scotland to, to get work there. And after the high publicity that was generated from the workers' occupation of Bifab back in 2017. But the Scottish government pulled the plug on it effectively by um, refusing to guarantee uh, and underwrite the loan for the company. So as a result, EDF, um, well, the company went into liquidation, EDF pulled, pulled out. What's happened to those workers then at Bifab, Hazel? Those workers at Bifab, they're... Uh, 
well, they're out of work, some of them. Um, some of them have had to work, go back into the oil and gas industry uh, for work. Um, some of them, they really are scattered across the whole of the UK and the whole of uh, actually globally, you know. Um, and I think it's important to talk about their personal stories. When we did the occupation in BIFAB in 2017, I tried to do Vox Pops with the members and I said, you know, what does BIFAB being open mean for you? And this one worker, he said, well, you know, Hazel, I've had to travel all over uh, the world and all over the UK at times trying to find work in my field. And BIFAB being open because I'm from Fife means I get to tuck my seven-year-old son into bed every night. And after we uh, secured a deal to keep work in the yards in 2017, I remember the first thing I did after meeting with Nicola Sturgeon where she broke the news to us um, is that I went to the pub. <laughs> and uh, and then I said, um, you know what, I'm gonna, I want to make sure that our reps know and our members know from us as opposed to hearing it breaking the news about what's happening. And um, and so I messaged them and I said, you know, we've won, we've secured the, we've secured the contract, you're all going to continue to have work for the next, few, for the next six months or until that project was due to wind down anyway. And uh, they wrote back and they said, oh, I hope you're celebrating, Hazel. And I said, yes, I am. And I sent them a selfie of me in the pub. And this one member, he wrote back to me and he said, this is me celebrating. And he was talking to a seven-year-old kid into bed. And that just caught me because there is a human impact to everything that we're doing. Well, that's incredibly moving, Hazel. And thank you for sharing the story. Um, I should sort of declare an interest because I did write to the... Um, then the business secretary, Alok Sharma, asking him to intervene in the Bifab case. And both he and the Scottish government gave similar answers, which I confess I still don't to this day really understand, which is they blame the state aid rules, essentially the EU state aid rules. Can you just explain what their argument is and what, what your understanding is about why they're saying this? I mean, their argument is that um, EU state aid rules prevent them from um, EU competition law from intervening. Um, I think that's nonsense. <laughs> I think it's interesting that the Tories are happy to use um, EU state aid rules when it suits them, despite the fact that we were weak. We were weeks at the time out from from leaving EU anyway. Um, and I, uh, you know, Ed, th this really comes down to political will. That is the number one issue that it comes down to. And there's not been political will. There's not been political will to back UK manufacturing for, for quite a while. And, uh, and that is, that's extremely frustrating. It's frustrating for our members in Scotland who can literally see these wind farms uh, off the shores from where they live. And they're paying for them through their energy bills to be uh, constructed. And they're suffering the double loss of paying for them but not getting any employment from them at the same time. Hazel, can I ask you just to set out for us what you think is at stake if we fail to deliver on delivering on creating good quality green jobs in the transition to net zero? I mean, if you talk to workers um, involved in the traditional oil and gas industry, you know, I know a lot of them are actually, um, you know, they want to have the, to do their part in terms of, you know, our commitments to having a greener, better environment. Um, and really, you know, if we want to bring communities to come with us on this, then we have to secure those jobs for them. And, you know, those workers are really, really skilled 
and we're going to lose that skill base. We talk about, um, you know, developing new skills for people, but actually there's a huge amount of talent and, and, and education skill base that's already there that's going to vanish because why would you invest in, in those training, in that sort of training for manufacturing if when we continuously lose jobs hand over fist in, in those industries? And, um, and it's just going to end up, you know, a race to the, to the bottom. I used to work as an anti-racist campaigner and you go into these deindustrialized areas and I think if you are working in, a, in an area like Fife where you used to take so much pride in the work you do, we need to talk about working class pride and people proud of, of, of doing things, you know, like they build ships or they made cars or, you know, you know, the work that you do is actually so important and I think that we miss that, we miss the emotional impact that has. It's a normal human condition to want to have meaning in your life. And that's what is, is disappearing. You know, people aren't just losing their jobs, they're losing their whole existence. That's a terrifying prospect. And then you look at where people turn when they're afraid. They look for strong people. And unfortunately, that the situation at the moment is it's driving them into the hands of, um, of some really nasty elements. Um, we need to appreciate that, you know, um, and, and give people a more positive alternative. And, uh, and I, I just don't see that that is happening. You know, as I'm speaking to you today <laughs> about the lack of jobs in manufacturing in the renewable sector, British, British Gas um, are having the largest gas strike since the 1970s because it's a you know an attempt to drive down their hard, hard won terms and conditions. We're losing we're losing jobs and term, and good jobs in uh, traditional energy, and we're not securing them in, in in the future of energy. And I have to say, you know. Like, I want that to happen. We all breathe the same air at the, same, at the end of the day. Um, I want there to be a future uh, for my children and, and everyone's children and to, to live in. Um, and, and so do our workers. It's just not happening. You know, you have to think about politics. Politics is about building coalitions and it's about bringing people with you. And if we want to bring a lot of these communities and a lot of these workers with us, it's hard to, to sell them on the idea of a you know a greener environment when they can't, when they're really worried about how they're going to feed their kids at the end of the week, you know? Um and the, 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 the frustration is that it's a false choice that they have to do that. Um, and that's what's maddening. Hazel, talk to us about the jobs that people are doing in the fossil fuel industry, because I think it's quite important that our listeners have in their, uh, their minds what the benchmark is for a, you know, a significant number of people in communities that are reliant on fossil fuels lots of those jobs are uh, jobs that are unionized jobs that are decently paid jobs that have up to now had a decent secure pension and so on yeah absolutely yeah um those are good unionized jobs you know and there are very there are very few of those um that are still being generated you know if you talk about traditional um, working class jobs that are, are, are well paid, you know, um, like those would be gas engineers. And, you know, it takes the same amount of time to qualify as a gas engineer as it took me to get my degree and my master's. And, uh, and so they should be, you know, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't see that every job that comes from, from traditional working class background has to be a minimum wage job, you know, and these are good quality jobs. And we also need those. We need to have an economy where people are paid well. Um, I know that you're going to um, be talking to someone from Denmark, and um, I remember when we had this debate with, with uh, and again it was a Scottish minister who said, um, 
Oh, well, Hazel, you know, it's the labour cost is why we're losing these jobs to uh, to other yards outside the UK. Um, and I was like, what, to, you know, infamously low-wage, you know, non-unionised places like Denmark. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, if anything, that just goes to show the scale of political failure on this. Um, and, you know, but it also it, it can show us how we can do it right as well. Um, because, as I said, all these things do come down to political will really brilliant to talk to you you're doing an amazing job and uh we're really grateful to you uh, hazel nolan uh, regional organizer for the gmb union in scotland thanks so much for joining us thank you so much for having me on well to give us a sense of why denmark is so far ahead with this we're joined by senior policy advisor at danish shipping thomas Silvest. hello Hello, Jeff. Good to see you. You too. Ed, Ed has told me that I have to try and speak Danish now. The problem is I only know it's hey, hello. Hey, that's correct. Yes. And, and tack is thank you. Absolutely. You see, I watched a lot of Borgen, but those were the only two words that I managed to, to pick up during uh, well, that. Well, that will get you fairly far. Well, I think that's pretty impressive, Jeff. I think you've lived up to the billing. Phew. The pressure was, uh, pressure was immense. <laughs> um, uh, Thomas, can you start by just telling us why Denmark has done so well with offshore wind. So how did it, how did it start? What was the investment like? How, basically, how did this sector get so big? Well, I mean, before, you, before going into why Denmark is, is and has been fairly um, competitive in, in offshore wind, I think you have to look at how Denmark approached onshore wind, to be honest with you. Um, I think the wind industry in in general in Denmark has has been um, has been sort of a, a an industry fairy tale. Um, uh, in Denmark, we're not and continue to be uh, sort of not for championing industries. However, uh, Denmark uh, was in a position where various administrations, going all the way back to sort of mid eighties at least. Um, have been proponents of of the wind industry and that as a as a green technology and and something which were to transform the Danish energy system. I guess in 1991 um, there was a decision that you know a, a initial project should be attempted in onshore wind, uh, and that has been the sort of the um, the legacy in in Danish politics on energy policy. Um, for for the most part of well what what are going on now thirty five years, so a, a great support from both sides of the aisle, uh, and that has really sort of laid the foundation for the industry. Can you, can you then sort of give us a, a sense of where the, the the sector is now? Then, if you look at the sector today, um, and in sort of real terms, uh, our, our our latest report, what I'm, which I'm sure we'll, we'll return to at some stage. Uh, will basically tell us that uh, one gigawatt, so 1,000 megawatts of, of offshore wind constructed in Denmark uh, will basically give, uh, will have 60% uh, Danish contracts in it. And one gigawatt of offshore wind constructed in Europe, uh, anywhere in Europe basically, will have uh, 40% of Danish contracts uh, won. So that, that's very interesting compared to us in the UK where... You know, we're, we're so far ahead in terms of wind power, uh, but the industry behind it and the joined up thinking uh, th- that it takes, um, it seems Denmark thought about this in a much more um, lateral way. 
than we have here in the UK? I think you can contribute a lot of it to what I said before about the policy choices, but you also have to to look at the the time when Denmark got started. Um, so if yeah, if we go back to let's let's just start at the offshore first offshore wind farm in 1991, uh, not a lot of companies were dedicated to to wind energy uh, or to any type of construction related to wind energy. But as government laid out programs for offshore wind, consecutive to, well at, at, alongside onshore wind. Um, you had more and more companies gaining more and more traction, supporting the uh, the program of offshore wind and obviously uh, gaining orders, but also spending more and more of their time and resources and gaining revenue from uh, the wind sector. And that led to uh, specialization, first of all, um, but it also led to jobs. Well, let's talk about those jobs and the study you mentioned. Uh, it's a major study last year into the Danish offshore wind industry. Um, talk to us about how offshore wind supports jobs and the kind of jobs that are created? Sure. Um, I mean, in Denmark in general, uh, if you look at the wind industry, uh, today there are approximately 33,000 people directly employed in the wind industry in Denmark. Um, If you include the sort of indirect uh, employment and the induced employment, the the figure goes up to about 95,000. Can you just remind us of the population of Denmark? Sure, that's about 5.5 million Danish right. people living in, uh, in, a, in a geographically challenged area here. So one in 50 people in Denmark is involved Ooh. in the wind industry? One in 55 people is somewhat involved in the wind industry, yes. Wow. Um, that is... Um, Good arithmetic there, Ed. Yeah, that's a lot of people. It, that is a high figure, absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, having said that, it is you know including all the induced effects. So, sure. so uh, you know uh, a lot of the people who uh, work directly in the industry you know spend their money at the local bakery or the local shop, and that's also taken into account, right. if you will. So, um, so but uh, nevertheless, um, certainly it, it is a, a major source of employment uh, for Denmark, definitely. And can I ask you, Thomas, because the the, the really the sort of uh, the the gigawatt question, if I can put it that way, for us is um, what you've done right that we haven't uh, done or yet done. Uh, what do you think it is that Denmark did substantively that that's made the difference? There isn't a sort of a clear cut answer to that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it is a whole host of 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 decisions made over you know the last thirty five years. But the uh, broad political backing is, of course, one. Having a home market is a second. Can I ask you about the role of the state, the Danish state? Because I have read a bit about Dong Energy, um, originally Danish oil uh, and natural gas energy, now now Orsted. Um, and they made a decision relatively late, actually, in the late 2000s to go from 90% fossil fuels, 90-10, I think it was, or maybe it was 80-20 fossil fuels, renewables. To, and they said within, I think, 20 or 30 years, they'd get to the reverse. They've done it in more or less in 10. Um, uh, ha, uh, but but they were largely state-owned, I think, at least at the time. How much of this is government investment, government industrial policy, government putting their money behind this domestic industry? That's a very good question. Um, and I'm not trying to be smart now, but the strategy was actually 85-15, 1585. Exactly, you were, you were just somewhere, somewhere yeah. in, there in, in, yeah. <laughs> in yeah. the middle. Um, 
But have, having said that, you're, you're completely right. Obviously, having a, a somewhat uh, partly state-owned uh, energy company uh, as as the sort of the, the foremost champion of, of offshore wind, uh, and and having that sort of uh, critical mass of of, uh, of knowledge and and, and labour um, compiled in in a in an energy player has has obviously been a, a big factor. There hasn't been. Um, there hasn't been direct support for the wind industry in Denmark as such. Having said that, um, you know, you, uh, you still have um, uh, initiatives supporting indirectly, I would say. So, um, for instance, through R&D, uh, test and demonstration. So you have government support towards test and demonstration facilities. You have uh, tax rebates for R&D expenditure. But you certainly have an indirect support from government to create an environment where you have skilled labor, you have competitive uh, um, front runners in terms of technology. Uh, And if you combine that with the history of the wind industry in Denmark and the sort of the first mover effect that we, we were lucky enough to gain, if you will, uh, then I think you have the recipe for something which is now being a very competitive industry and something which is globally competitive as well. We have a thing on the podcast called the um, Jeffocracy, which is Jeff being the supreme uh, ruler, which um, he hopes will one day happen and I'm not so sure about. But uh, let's assume it um, does occasionally happen. I think one of the things, first things he'll be doing is he will be on the phone to you saying, Thomas, will you come over and come mm, and be mm. uh, our Minister for Offshore Wind Energy uh, and Creating Jobs in the UK? What, would you, what are the things that you would be looking at, the, the, the areas you'd be looking at, to see whether we could build the supply chain and the, uh, supply chain and the jobs actually here in this country? Uh, yeah, I mean, thank you very much for for asking that question. I think. <laughs> I mean, we can, we can any, talk any, salary any, later. We don't. Sure, need to sure, sure. Any, any any job of uh, of minister seems a, a very attractive one, especially in uh, in offshore wind. But uh, but as to your question, um, I think there are a couple of things that I, w- I would focus on. One is actually uh, skilled labour. So trying to tailor made the the educational system towards this particular industry would be would be really uh, relevant. That would be one thing. The second thing would would be uh, to try perhaps and take the focus away from from the sort of the big anger investment uh, a little bit and try and to focus on the on the supply chain. Try to focus on the jobs generated through service uh, through through the uh, the entire support uh, sort of support chain, if you will, uh, of the entire wind industry. So jobs are not only created through huge investments in nacelle factories or blade factories or, or, or tower factories for that matter, but they're created at a local level uh, in port sites uh, through sort of the local carpenter or the local electrician or so on. And those jobs can also support uh, the huge home market that you have as a, as a country. So I, I, would, uh, I, would, I would try and go local, <laughs> so to speak, and then and, and try to, uh, to get the educational system up and running supporting that local development. I'd say he's got the job. Uh, Thomas Silvest, uh, Policy Advisor at Danish Shipping. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Well, to talk some more about this, we are delighted to welcome back to the podcast Chaitanya Kumar, Head of Environment and Green Transition at the New Economics Foundation. Chaitanya, hello. Welcome back. Lovely to be back on this podcast. You're in an exclusive group that has been on twice. How many people would you say it is, Jeff? Half a dozen people? 
I think so. Yeah, we should we should give out badges like Blue Peter badges, but reasons to be cheerful badges. I, I'm honoured. I'm honoured. When yeah. the first time I did it, a lot of people came back saying, "Oh my god, I can't believe you've been on the podcast." I can't wait for the reaction when I say I've been on the second. Chanya, you can definitely come on a third time. Having said that, <laughs> let's talk about the the offshore wind industry here in the UK. On the face of it, it looks like you know a success story. Um, in terms of wind power capacity, how, how has it grown in recent years? Can you give us the potted history? The sector and the, and the, the industry has grown considerably over the last few years, uh, especially over the last decade. Uh, it's grown about roughly eightfold uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, it is expected to be the single largest source of electricity in the country. And the UK's net zero target, which is now uh, legislation law, is heavily reliant on the success of this sector. So it, can you make sense of the fact that this this growth of offshore wind hasn't created the green jobs that were promised. So so why does the sector here not create all these jobs like we've seen in Denmark? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very important question. I think offshore wind, given its scale uh, in the UK, is certainly creating jobs. Uh, so let's be clear about that. The challenge is it's not proving to be as valuable uh, an industry to the wider economy and society as it is in Denmark. So there is a multifold difference in the number of people employed in Denmark compared to the UK. Well, on that, the government has this pledge to quadruple the UK's offshore wind capacity by 2030, uh, which which could create up to 60,000 jobs. Does that sound realistic to you? I think it is realistic, but there's a lot to be done. Right now, in the current uh, scheme of things, we can only reach about three quarters of a way to, uh, to that target of 40 gigawatts. Uh, so we've still got some work to do over the next few years to make sure we actually are track. And that takes us to the sort of key point, doesn't it? Which is, there's one question about whether we can get to the 40 gigawatts uh, as a country and whether we've got the port and other capacity. But then there's another crucial question, which obviously you've touched on already, which is, are we going to generate the jobs here? What, what do you think needs to be done looking forwards to make sure that workers benefit from the expansion of offshore wind? So... There, there is a simple concept called local content requirements. Um, local content, it's a fairly straightforward concept. The idea being that local content essentially denotes the total spending of an asset owner of a wind farm. So who owns the wind farm wants to invest in the wind farm. The amount of money they spend in the form of contracts to UK companies, so companies operating in Britain, that constitutes local content. So the higher the local content, the higher the requirement on the asset owner to invest in companies in Britain. Right now, there's a target of about 50% that was to have been met by the end of last year. We're almost there. We're about 49, 50%. So we're almost there. The target for 2030 is 60%, uh, which, is, which is good. But I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate this point as to why this is very important, the local content. So researchers at Strathclyde University did some analysis of what are the additional jobs you could create if you actually enhance the local content requirements on these companies? Just by increasing the target from 60% to 70%, you can create an additional 100,000 jobs uh, across the economy. And that's a massive difference on how valuable offshore wind could be uh, in the economy. And is there a wider lesson here about um, industrial policy and our approach to green industrial policy because we're talking specifically about offshore wind and jobs in offshore wind 
But are there, is this part of a wider pattern about the way we approach industrial policy as a country? I, I think so. I think if you ask me, in the UK, we have decisively moved towards the delivery of net zero. We've done well locking in net zero into legislation. We can have debates on the fringe about whether it's too late, too soon. I think that's slightly material. What needs to happen now is how can what can we do right in the next 10 years to, to essentially get us on track? The reason I mentioned this, of course, is all of this will mean we have to bring people along with us. And if there isn't any trust in transition, a fair transition element to it, and trust that this transition is actually a good deal for them, it needs to be a good deal because we've written and waxed eloquent about how good it is for the economy and jobs and all of that. Now it's time to actually show that. And that's where industrial policy will, will be quite, quite critical. So we have a thing on the um, podcast, uh, Chaitanya, which I think you're familiar with, called the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as the benign uh, green uh, ruler um, of the country. You'd be green, wouldn't you, Jeff? <laughs> Oh, very much, but but yeah. you know, I'm not I'm not involving myself day to day, Chaitanya. There's a lot of delegation and free reign to my appointees. What are the things you would do in the sort of Jeffocracy, Chaitanya, to make sure that we we not only had the power generation, but the the jobs too? Three things, very quickly. One is continue to invest and nurture companies in Britain that can cater to the UK's domestic market because it's going to grow. We know that for a fact it's going to grow. How do we ensure we do that uh, in terms of nurturing SMEs, for example, can play a major role doing that. The second is the local content requirement and enhancing that. Fairly straightforward. Uh, work with the industry doing that, but it can be done. And the third is skills. Um, about 80% of the jobs in the sector require uh, a high degree of skill, high or medium degree of skill, and we do not have that yet. So we need to build those uh, skill set uh, across the population as well. So these are three things, eminently sensible, eminently doable, uh, with Jeff in place. I'm sure they can be done much faster. Just a broader question to um, end with, Chaitanya. Um, we've had Joe Biden elected in the uh, US. We all know we're in a race against time when it comes to the climate crisis. Just underline for us how kind of decisive the next period is in relation to the decisions we make as a country and 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 what's your sort of scale of optimism about about you know our ability to both make this transition and do so in a just way um so i've been in this uh sort of climate sector for the last 12 years it's only now generally feels the last 12 years uh that it, that now, now's the time it feels the most promising to me, to be honest. Uh, just the momentum behind from a public mobilization point of view and the role of young people that we've seen in the last three years and that translating into impact in terms of the Biden presidency and all the executive orders that are coming in, I think now feels the most hopeful for me. I believe things are coming together uh, and perhaps COP26 will be one of those sites where... Um, you know, well, the tide will turn in some sense. I'm hopeful, but cautiously optimistic. Chaitanya Kumar, it's been great to have you on again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, what did you think? I didn't realise that the, the UK was so good on wind power in terms of yeah. generation. I didn't know that. And, you know, that, that felt kind of impressive, uh, especially given it was from a standing start at the, the turn yeah. of the century. But then... 
you know, li- listening to Thomas, you just think, well, was it that there was a the, the lack of joined up thinking that they've had for decades in Denmark, but or, or listening to Hazel, was it kind of bordering on self sabotage, this inability to translate that into lots of jobs? I think the thing that strikes me listening to Thomas uh, and Chaitanya is, I think there's a kind of cultural. There was a long-term kind of embrace early of the fact that this was the future in Denmark. And it wasn't just the future, but it would need, broadly speaking, a kind of proper industrial strategy to really sort of support it. And I think the story of Dong Energy is quite interesting because they were just incredibly far-sighted. I think there were particular reasons why it happened, but they were quite far-sighted in thinking this. And they had very patient, what they call patient capital, so it was like the state you know, was a big owner of it. So I think there's a sort of set of things about long-termism, about an industrial strategy and so on. I think the other thing I would say is really striking was listening to Hazel, which is, I mean, I thought it was incredibly moving what Hazel had to say. Mm, mm. And I think, you know, if you want to know why climate and fairness or climate and job creation tackling the climate challenge and job creation must go together. Just listen to Hazel. I mean, it's the right thing to do, but it's also essential if we're going to take people with us on this journey, because if we don't do that, people are going to say, well, you know, I, you know, I, ha- I had a great job in oil and gas and so on, and you haven't created the alternative jobs for me or for my kids or for, you know, whoever else, uh, local communities. So I think there's a real... You know, I think it's a real imperative. I don't think this is just like a nice to have. I think this is absolutely fundamental to bringing people with us in the climate transition. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Thoughts on what you've heard about the green transition, uh, creating offshore wind jobs. If you work in the offshore wind industry, we'd love to hear from you. If you've got ideas for future episodes, you can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. We read uh every email and we read out the ones that are nice about us no uh we 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 even want even we, we read all of them um uh we 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 like um what is it self-reinforcement a positive encouragement is what positive we like. encouragement all ideas all um thoughts really really uh appreciated we love we do love hearing from people this one came from betty wright on blue zones last week's episode I'd really enjoyed this episode, as I do most weeks. Most? Well, OK, don't, don't quibble. Right. Interesting that you think climate in London stops you spending much time outside. I live in North Scotland and spend most of my days outdoors doing stuff around our garden. Even in January, there's lots to do. Harvesting willow, pruning trees, cutting back gorse, raking leaves. Ed, you said you wanted to try gardening. Welcome here anytime post-lockdown, of course, with your family, but no dogs except virtual ones. Wonderful river for wild swimming, too. That's good. It's a good offer. Yeah, I noticed it was just made exclusively to you and your family. Well, maybe it's because I volunteered to be the gardener. Maybe it, maybe if Betty wants a house hippie, you, <laughs> you, you, could, be, uh, you could be in line. Okay. Uh, this comes from Amanda Morgan, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. Your recent episode on Blue Zones highlighted the importance of the environment we live in to our health. It got me thinking about the habits children and young people form and the world we as adults create for them. 
I'm not even that old on the other end of millennial from Jeff. Um, but during my lifetime, I've seen a huge change in how active young people are able to be. I grew up playing on the road outside my house almost every day. What does it say about the possibility of creating healthy generations who live to 100 when we have designed our streets and communities in such a way as to imprison children and young people indoors? That's interesting. I live in Hackney, uh, the borough of Hackney in London, and I see lots of our streets are designated as play streets uh, around here for at least some of the time. Well, it is part of the reimagining we need to do, isn't it? Yeah. And talking of reimagining, I think I need to reimagine the way I eat kimchi. (laughs) So thank you to Twitter. Twitter has its uses. Stuart Hedges said, may I recommend uh, HTTP? No, may I recommend norecipes.com for some kimchi recipes? I'm a big hang fan. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Stop right there. Did you just start reading out a web address by giving out the HTTP colon slash yes. slash? Yes, all right. Uh, what? How old cut, are you? We're going to cut that bit out. Uh, uh, <laughs> we are not. Uh, I'm a big fan of kimchi gion, kimchi pancakes. I usually just leave the pork out to make it veggie. Hate to think of Ed just eating it from the jar and then the imaginary teacher tweeted sad about your review of kimchi korea's national side dish at the start of the episode having it by itself (laughs) is like eating blue cheese with a spoon thinking it's ice cream (laughs) try it with hot sticky rice korean barbecue or consult korean chefs on on instagram and youtube I, i yeah okay look i do (laughs) <laughs> I did think there was something a bit peculiar about what I was doing. Well, do get in touch with us. It's http colon forward slash forward slash www.cheerfulpodcast.com. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And our cheerful person this week, we welcome back Amica George, who's founder of the Free Periods Campaign and author of Make It Happen, How to Be an Activist. Amica, hello. Hi. So tell us about the, the book then, Make It Happen. It's a guide to activism. It's based on the lessons that you learned from the Free Period Campaign. Um, tell us about how the book came about and, and what you wanted to uh, to achieve with it. I started Free Periods about four years ago, and I think I... I was quite young, I was 17 at the time, and I'd never been involved in any kind of activism or campaigning before. And to be quite honest, I didn't really know what I was doing. I made a lot of mistakes. And I also found that over the last four years, I've been contacted by so many incredible, inspiring young activists who wanted to do something um, in, in terms of campaigning. They wanted to start their own campaigns or get involved in activism and didn't know where to start and came to me for advice. So this book feels to me like the book I wish I'd had when I started. Um, it goes through all the many mistakes that I made and it also covers the stories of 28 other amazing activists who have all made change either in their own kind of local schools or communities or places of work or led global campaigns responsible for real legislative change. And, and tell us about how you went uh, about finding those stories and, and deciding who to talk to. I'm really privileged that I've met so many people who work in different areas of activism and campaigning over the last four years. Um, one person that springs to mind is Laura Corriton, who started the End Tampon Tax campaign. Gabby Edlin, who started Bloody Good Period, which distributes period products to asylum seekers and refugees in England. Um, and so many other incredible people who have been so supportive of me and my campaign and one thing that I also wanted to really come across in the interviews is that the majority of them are young people I think the majority are probably under under 30 and I think that feels like a really important 
thing to reflect for me because I do think when we look at kind of the traditional political sphere right now, young people don't feel particularly represented in terms of, for example, the House of Parliament right now in the UK, but also global politics. Um, So I feel like activism kind of fills that space, especially with the rise of social media and social media activism. And obviously the book is full of lessons, Amica, for people who want to start their own campaigns. If you had to sort of distill it, and I know I'm sure this is hard, into a few of the most important lessons you would draw from it, what would they be? I've been approached so many times by people who have said, like, why do you want to campaign against period poverty? Why not poverty? Or why not patriarchy? Or why not the climate crisis? And I think we're living in a world right now when there are so many of these huge um really massive daunting um problems that need sort of fixing and it's actually not possible for one person to do that so my approach with period poverty was just finding one thing that i felt i could maybe have an impact in changing and distilling it down to one small action um and so that's a a really key piece piece of advice i would definitely say to just find that one thing get it done work on it and focus on it and then move on to the next thing rather than Um, kind of get bogged down in the fact that all these huge structural issues exist. Now you've been writing your book, you've been doing your studies, but you've also obviously carried on with the the campaign. Where are we up to then with the Free Periods campaign, do you think? What's your assessment of where things are at? Yeah, so um, in terms of where we're at, so in the beginning of 2019, the government announced that free period products would be made available to all schools and colleges in England, which was fantastic news to have finally been recognised and for them to take period poverty in education really seriously. Um, and the scheme actually started in at the beginning of 2020. Um, and the way that it works is that it's an opt-in scheme. So all schools and colleges are given a budget, but they only get the products that they're entitled to if they order them in on a monthly basis. And for me, that was a real problem because it meant that about eight months after the scheme was in place, less than 40% of schools had actually signed up and received the products. So it's quite upsetting, I think, that a lot of people still are suffering from period poverty, potentially could could be receiving free products but aren't. Um, and research has also found that period poverty has massively deteriorated um, since lockdown um, just because of the state of economy and deteriorating poverty levels in this country so at the beginning of the pandemic one in 10 girls were struggling to afford period products it's now three in 10 and one in 25 families have admitted to suffering from period poverty so this isn't getting any better and to be honest i do think that the only reasonable um kind of development that can that has to take place is that the government makes the scheme mandatory so that all schools just have to order the products rather than have the option because there's just not enough awareness and schools aren't ordering them in and if there's somebody listening to this podcast who thinks well i've got an issue that i want to campaign on it feels like it's a kind of you know you know it's a hard thing to change but it's a manageable sized issue what's your what's your next piece of advice to them what would what's what's the, what's the sort of from somebody who's d- done amazingly with your campaign what's what would you say to them um i feel like this sounds really kind of corny but you've got to just do it because i think in the last four years out of all the many 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 setbacks and mistakes that i made that first day was the hardest day actually like pressing launch on the petition and deciding to be the, the person to do it because 
especially right now, I think the state of the world, the climate of the economy, things feel quite um, dark and bleak. And it's very easy to kind of resign to that and just think I'm just one person. I can't do much. I can't achieve very much. So just kind of having the self-belief to think actually I can be the person and you won't be the only person if you if you've identified an issue, even if it's just in your school, in your community. and it makes you angry and you feel like it needs to be changed 100% you're not going to be the only person that feels that way so joining up and making those connections and building a community be it online or offline I think is really crucial but that first step and just getting started is actually the hardest part well Annika George it's an incredibly inspiring um, campaign that you've been uh, that, that you launched and and the book is very inspiring the book is make it happen how to be an activist thank you so much for joining us Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. In the outro. We're in the outro. Can I tell you something which is a reason to be cheerful? I, I, this is partly psychological, partly isn't. I find November a much more depressing month than January, which is not really the conventional wisdom. Because November, I feel the days are getting shorter and shorter and we're on the downswing. And, I, and I've probably said this to you before in the past three seasons. Um, but I always think, oh, God, you know, it's soon going to be getting darker. 3.45. Whereas at this time of year, I mean, actually, I'm so obsessive, it'll be surprised you to hear that I actually, every couple of days, I look at the sunsets that they have on the web, on the interweb. Uh, <laughs> www.interweb. <laughs> on the information superhighway. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And they, you know, and I see all oh, the sunset is getting a bit longer. They have first light, daylight, or first light, sunrise, uh, sunset, last light. And I think, oh, it's getting longer, it's getting longer. And then I sort of think, you i think when i i think when i'm older i think i'm gonna i think i'd like to go and live in another place where it's like so you could start living a hermit-like existence where you just follow the sunset you gradually um after the the midsummer you start heading south before slowly bringing your heading back northwards after the winter equinox like a bird or not like a bird or something. A bit like a bird, yeah. I just want to mention something, which is that an episode is going to pop up in your feed towards the end of the week, and it's a commercial partnership, so Ed won't be on it. My guest co-host is comedian Matt Ford. It's sponsored by Oatly. It's about nudging people towards a more climate-friendly, plant-based diet. And it's also very interesting as well on how we talk to people with different views to our own, how we go about bringing people along. So I just wanted to alert you to that. Shall we thank our guests? Yes, I'd like to thank our guests, Hazel Nolan, Thomas Silvest and Chaitanya Kumar. And thanks to the fantastic Amica George. Emma Caution produces our podcast. The brains behind the operation is Joel Pierce. Um, he does all the research and finds amazing guests. However, he has been supported of late by the brilliant Zoe Gelber and Fanula DC, who, Ed, they've outgrown us. I know. This is the I trouble know. when you have good people. There's always better things for them to be going and doing. Oh, that's an interesting philosophy of life. Right. Uh, but no, they've been out. <laughs> They've been absolutely brilliant. We'd really like to thank Zoe and Fanula for for the fantastic job that they've done. And they've both got really interesting projects that they're now pursuing. And we wish them the best of luck. We do. Also, uh, a a big shout out to our friends at Left Foot Forward too. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed our music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been HTTP. He's been colon slash slash www... (laughs) 
And these have been reasons to be cheerful.org.uk, formerly.eu. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.